0: Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Elb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com, to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. My guest today is Kevin Campos, partner and head of retail at Fifth Wall. Fifth Wall manages the largest fund specialized in real estate technology. On the retail side, some of their investments include Allbirds, Cotopaxi, and Foxtrot. This was an awesome conversation about Kevin's upbringings in retail, how that helped shape his career, the changes in retail during COVID, and why landlords should be more open to tech-enabled tenants and the advantages of tech-enabled tenants. Without further ado, here's Kevin. Kevin, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing awesome, Mike. Thank you for having me, man. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing really well. Thanks for asking. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Why to start at the very beginning. What was your initial attraction to retail?
1: I guess I could say I was born into it. And the reason is both my parents had kind of small businesses in retail. Father had a sort of French cafe bakery and my mother had a small children's clothing company. As you can imagine, and I think it's the right way to to do it, but the parents required that our first jobs as kids be at the family business, of course, right? Like any good parent, uh, tap into the labor pool that you have that's captive. And so those, those are your kids. Yeah, <laughs> so that was the first job first job was pouring coffee making sandwiches you know serving pastries in the morning at my father's breakfast you know for breakfast rush hour at my father's cafe and my go-to shift was was opening the cafe at like 5 30 in the morning that was my go-to in the summers and also remember spending tons of time at my mom's factory where they made the clothes in the us she was the ceo and, and head designer um, but they also manufactured in the U.S., and I remember spending weekends there. I remember spending uh, trips to uh, Magic, which I think was like the conference at the time, the wholesale conference for children's clothing. So that's that's kind of where I, I cut my teeth. Just just in the family businesses, and that was the topic of conversation at the dinner table. You know, it's it's that was just part of life.
0: So summer camp campos was working in the family businesses, getting the coffee ready, sorting out helping your dad with his business, helping your mom with her business, and I guess really just understanding like the ins and outs of retail, right?
1: 100 percent I joked that, you know, around the dinner table, some people would talk about news or, you know, you know, current topics with their family. For my family, it was like, hey, dad, should you be expanding next door? The spot next to you is open. Like, and he's sitting there asking the family, like, you know, he and his partner are going through the idea of should they expand and take over two locations? So it's twice as large and they have room for more front of house, or should they stay in the smaller location that they are now and actually just take their production facilities, the baking that was happening in, in the back of house in that small location, and move that inland to a place that was lower cost? And then they could have more front of house in their existing location. And like, I raised my hand for the moving the baking facilities um, off premise. I thought, you know, when you have your baking facilities on the coast, this is in Southern California, half of your radius is the ocean, your delivery radius. I was like, that makes no sense. And I'm like 12. I'm like, we can't do that, dad. Like half of your delivery radius is the ocean. You need to go inland, get more places you can deliver to. And uh, sure enough, he didn't. He didn't take my suggestion. He he opened next door and just had a bigger place. But that was like the kind of conversations we would have at the dinner table. in the same for my mom's business.
0: That's amazing. It reminds me a little bit of like when I talked to who's an investor, uh, Katie Shea, and she I think grew up in a similar environment. Both parents were um, entrepreneurs, and like that's kind of like all she knew. Like, probably similar to you. Like, that was just the other kind of professions out there. Like, you just didn't really know any better. Like, this is just all you really knew about it because you grew up with it was entrepreneurship. And sounds also kind of similar to, like, Nick Mandel's childhood, too, who his father ran a restaurant. And Nick was saying how, with him, he's an investor at um, Amberstone. And he was saying with him, like, he almost tried every other profession, but, like, retail kind of kept pulling him back in, so to speak. When you approached your professional career, was it kind of the same or did you always have this hunch that retail is really where I want to focus my time
1: yeah, that's such a good question because i think early on i knew i liked retail i liked consumer broadly but i think i was close enough to say look i want to do something different than what my parents are doing and and by the way like I, i've worked with both of them you know not just like on the weekend but like actually had jobs for summers at, at both parents businesses and i said look i need to go learn somewhere else from someone else like uh, there's even if i did come back i could never actually improve the business if all i ever did was learn from from you guys right like you got to bring new ideas so i was excited when i started my career just to be you know i think at a really great place for for general business education i started at bain and company um, management consulting and you just you kind of learn the world of business in a general sense it's kind of like a real world mba how to communicate, how to break down questions, how to frame opportunities, um, how to work with clients, et cetera. There, I just got those general um, skills and competencies. And then I started getting exposure to different industries. And it was at Bain & Company that I came across the private equity industry, which is, and more specifically, kind of the the buyout shops um, of private equity. So later stage, mature companies that are being bought and sold you know, and held privately along the way by investment firms. And what I was attracted to, and ultimately I, j- I joined Golden Gate Capital in San Francisco, I was really excited because they had a great retail practice. They were buying kind of older established retail brands that were, you know, for one reason or another, a little bit down. They needed to be dusted off. A lot of people there were from Bain and Company. There was like an operational expertise and, and a perspective, and it wasn't just necessarily financial engineering. It was, how do we improve this sort of underperforming asset? And and so you're dusting it off and trying to reposition the company and and then hopefully sell it for more down the road. But I love that idea. I loved how to learn from the people that worked at Goldgate. And then also you're partnering with great management teams, CEOs and founders of, of businesses. And you know just, just to give a few examples, but while I was there, the investments we made in retail were Express, Eddie Bauer, J. Jill, a lot of apparel, a lot of mall-based apparel, which informed some of my thinking later on. But a lot of mall-based apparel and a lot of restaurants, which I loved because of my kind of food and beverage background with with my family. But we invested in especially casual dining. You know, it was, it's on the border, Macaroni Grill, California Pizza Kitchen. So a lot of lot of interesting big names. But at the same time, they all needed to do a little bit better than they had been. They, they've kind of like fallen a bit in terms of their luck, in terms of performance, and our job is to come in and improve things. So that, was, that is a great place to learn. And, and I always thought like, hey, if I do come back to the family business, I will have brought some new ideas and, and seen kind of world-class operations. Um, that I can bring home.
0: What got you shifted more since this is kind of middle market buyout uh, type of world. What kind of got you shifted towards early stage venture capital and really dealing with, or also on the operations side too, with early brands?
1: Yeah, it was really a natural progression because I'm there at Golden Gate. We're investing in these companies and I'm seeing I'm seeing this one trend that, that, by the way, none of us fully appreciated—not not the Golden Gate team, not the management teams—but e-commerce was just always a bright spot, or almost always a bright spot for the companies we invested in. And it would it'd be a small part of the business, but it would be growing really quickly. And you notice things like that in a legacy business when maybe the overall business isn't growing, right? It's been flat or or declining for a few years, but there's this bright spot here, and it was different. You know, for each business, but like off-premise food and delivery for for a business like CPK or just e-commerce, you know, order and fulfillment for for clothing companies. But that was the bright spot quarter after quarter. And I said to myself, look, I, there's two things I wanted to accomplish as I continued my career. One was I don't think there's a substitute for operational experience. I think it makes you a better investor, having been able to, to kind of roll up your sleeves and take an idea. And it's funny, like with consulting, you have ideas that kind of generally live at the board level or with exact with management teams. And then when you're in private equity, you're investing. These ideas, you don't just have a presentation. You have to you make a bet off of your ideas and your theses. And so you're a little closer to it because you're tied into the business through ownership. But taking it one step further is actually going out and doing it. And so I, I knew I wanted to operate, and I was fascinated by the trend of e-commerce. And so I said, look, let me put these two things together. Let me go out, let me join an e-commerce brand and get some experience operating. And so that's what I did.
0: What I really liked about what you said is it's one thing to make like a strategy deck and to think of the overall strategy and being the consultant, making the recommendation. But it's a whole nother to think about, okay, this is a great strategy, but how the heck do we execute? Right, and how the heck do we actually like make this actually happen? And so I think you, given that that ability to be able to actually really have like the foresight of okay, operating experience, actually something that that is certainly difficult, and but something that I think that in growing any business is kind of the next phase or the next thing that I need to learn because I really need to understand like how to execute these ideas.
1: Totally, it's more often than not, it's a. It's a people challenge, you know. Like retail is is a very people driven business. You have a lot of different stakeholders and employees, different layers, and so like you can be the consultant or the investor, and you can see like, oh, this one location is not performing. You know, has a higher wastage than these other twenty or the average restaurant. Let's just make sure that all the ones that are underperforming get to average. Well, it's like okay, that's easy to say, but how do you do it? Why is it? Why is wastage so high there? And And what's missing, you know, maybe it's the GM is not strong or they're understaffed or like all these number of things that you need to figure out. And it's a little bit of an investigation, but you won't have an appreciation for how hard it is to actually get results without having been responsible for trying to get those results yourself.
0: What attracted you to work at? Fifth Wall. I know you also had operating experience, but what attracted you to maybe stay on the investment side, say, and maybe come down one level into venture capital? And what is some of the differences w- partnering with a founder at maybe more the early stages versus like the private equity mid market stages?
1: Well, I I was operating and I was a digital native brand, and the funny thing was, it was this menswear clothing company. We were. we we were digitally native so we started online great traction there but customers were asking us increasingly to you know do pop-ups or to open a store somewhere near them especially because this was formal wear so people really wanted to try it on and and we can talk about this more but every every category will have its own different considerations of as to why and when and how you, you you might go offline but we were pulled pretty early i was in charge of growth and and sort of new areas of growth and retail was just clearly one of them. I was the head of that group. We opened a couple of our own stores. We we did partnerships with Bloomingdale's, where we had shopping shops, we had a pop-up program with Nordstrom. So all these different versions of offline and interestingly enough, right? Like I'm sitting there opening stores and I'm seeing the value of it. We can talk about that, but but uh, I also met some really interesting real estate owners that were wanting to invest in in the future of their shopping centers, their malls, by investing in tiny digitally native brands like the one I worked at. And I found that really interesting. You know, Coincidentally, one of those real estate owners and operators is a large institutional shopping center. They were an LP at Fifth Wall. And that was kind of my first connection. Then I had a second connection to Fifth Wall just through my social networks. And basically, I, I met the team. I met the, the co-founders. Uh, Brendan and Brad and, and I was talking with Andre. He's another one of the managing partners. And and at the time they had just maybe had, this was like 2017, and they had they had their first fund up and running and 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 they were finding success. And I just found it really impressive what they built in their first fund and and, and really the the architecture of their entire firm, which is as follows. Um, they noticed that, especially in the early stage venture capital funding um, and, and firms, they have a ton of expertise in digital, but not a ton in physical. And, and what I mean by that is sort of the real estate world, the, the what we call at Fifth Wall, the built world, the places where people live, work, play, gather, these physical spaces. It's not that the most popular mantra might be in ventures, software is eating the world, right? At Fifth Wall, we believe software is absolutely eating the world, but you need to have an understanding of the world and how it interacts with software and There's this intersection between two massive industries, basically technology and real estate. Real estate is incredibly large. It's one of the biggest sectors of of our economy, but a little bit slow to adopt technology at the end of the day. It's a conservative industry and doesn't have a lot of relationships or connections to consumers. It's kind of like a more behind-the-scenes industry. You know, you think about your office owners and your, um, your mall owners, your multifamily owners and things like that. They're a little bit more behind the scenes. They don't need to think about technology every day. They're, they kind of leave it up to the people who are using their space to think about technology. But the reality is, they have an industry that could benefit like any other industry from technology. And so, Fifth Wall was one of the first to identify prop tech, which is you know, short for, for property technology, but, but prop tech as a huge opportunity. It's essentially the digitization of real estate ownership and and management. And what I mean by that is just, what are the tools, software, marketplaces um, that can be adopted by owners, landlords, uh, owners and operators of real estate to improve the management ownership or usage of their physical properties? That's PropTech. And there's lots of great concepts in that space. It was an idea that was covered, I would say. just tangentially by generalist funds, but no one had a real expertise or a background in real estate to be able to underwrite and have a, a strong vision for that industry. And frankly, when I met them, they were doing prop tech and I said, that's fantastic. You guys have one of the largest mall owners in America as, as one of your partners. That's really great because it, they had other partners. They had one of the largest landlords in multifamily, one of the largest office developers, one of the largest industrial owners. Just just incredible lineup in their first fund. And it gave them an opportunity to see what were the needs and what the future looked like in terms of what technology might be adopted by those partners. But when it came to retail, I actually thought the most interesting changes driven by technology were not necessarily at the prop tech level, though so there are some prop tech opportunities for retail landlords, but it's even just at the tenant level. Who will be your tenant next year or in five years from now or 10 years from now. And frankly, there's a lot of turnover in retail today. And it's a lot of legacy brands, some that I know closely from my time at at Golden Gate Capital and private equity, uh, who have not kept up with, with the times they have not adapted to what consumers want in terms of products or offerings, or also how consumers want them in terms of channels and experiences in store and experiences online. So, those companies—they're struggling, they're failing, and oftentimes they're going bankrupt. Right? Like we've seen years of record bankruptcies in retail, and the landlords, the retail landlords, are left holding the bag almost for no fault of their own. And they need to have—you know—if they want to to continue to do well, they need to have a proactive approach to this pretty tumultuous market. And so I—I I said, and you know, combined with 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 the um, the founders at at Fifth Wall said, look. I I think there's an opportunity here to invest in sort of tech-enabled tenants um, for retail landlords and to help them identify the tenants of the future. And so I joined um, and worked with some other folks as well to to build up Fifth Wall's retail and and consumer practice, which eventually became Fifth Wall's first retail and consumer fund, a dedicated fund for uh, what we call sort of the, the tenants
0: of the future. That's amazing. That's super interesting. What do you mean by tech-enabled tenants? Do you mind giving me a couple examples?
1: Sure. We have a few different angles for looking at this, but a commonly uh, used term is the like digitally native brands. You know, I think Andy Dunn from Andy Dunn from Bonobos came up with that term, I believe, first. And and I think it's a good one. It's it's these brands that are born online. And what's interesting, and it, yeah, I think Bonobos made this journey like most do um, or most will, they ultimately realize they need to open stores. And it's, it's really difficult to scale a business exclusively online. But, but let's, start about, let's start talking about why it's easy to start a brand online. right? Like Why, why does a digitally native brand make sense? It happened in, you know, in the last 10 plus years, but these brands, maybe 15 years, um, with the rise of e-commerce and importantly, the rise of like social media, to create awareness you had this this moment in time in which brands had access to all kinds of tools so with shopify they could get up and running in a weekend they could get their word out about what their brand was what they were offering through social media and they're off to the races right like they're finding their first customers making their first few sales and it's and doing it digitally is an incredibly great place to start because it's really flexible right it, you can with social media, target different kinds of customers. You can reinvent your storefront, your digital storefront within hours, right? Like you can change the, the, the look and feel of your logo. You can reshoot your product. You can reskin your, your website on Shopify and you can look and feel different. And you can't, you can't do that with a store, not nearly as easily, right? Like a lot of money goes into the location you, you pick and, and the size and the footprint. And, and it's hard to tweak things in the real world it's a lot easier to test or essentially, you know, A/B test your way into kind of early product market fit online. It's a wonderful place to do that, and and to have bite-sized, you know, entry into advertising. Right? Like you can spend five dollars, you can spend fifty dollars, you can spend five thousand. Um, but you can you can sort of spend what you need or what you can afford and grow from there. And and that's that's why it's it's no surprise to see this proliferation of brands online that's a great place to start because it can be so flexible. And we've seen Shopify as a platform go from, you know, in in under, I think like 10 years, they went from about, you know, a few thousand or under 50,000 merchants to over a million, right? Like if you use that as a proxy for kind of the long tail of, of brands being born online and digitally native brands, and not all of them are digitally native, they can be Maybe an analog business that's that's tapped into a Shopify account, but I think as a proxy, it's a really good one. It just shows the growth of, of of businesses because these tools have made it so easy. But it's also, if it's never been easier to start a brand online, I also think it's almost never been harder to scale one um, sustainably. Because and we've seen this change year after year since the, the beginning of this trend, but. Over time, it becomes pretty expensive to just acquire customers digitally. Like online customer acquisition costs are expensive and and they actually don't have um, economies of scale. <laughs> they have diseconomies of scale. It gets more expensive as you go kind of outside your sweet spot and you're competing for, with the general population of advertisers for the same people in a fixed pool. And you've got more and more ad dollars coming in and an auction-based system it becomes really expensive really quickly to acquire customers. And those aren't your only costs. Uh, you've also got the cost of serving those customers, which is sort of inbound and outbound fulfillment. So, you know, shipping is not cheap, um, nor are returns. Returns are a huge, huge cost to e-commerce businesses. And, and ultimately put all those together, you can see why it's actually pretty difficult to be profitable exclusively online. And that's actually something we felt was was a bit of a a push when we looked at our own finances when I was at the DigiNative brand, which is to say, look, we need to find other efficient ways of, of scaling, of getting in front of customers. Lo and behold, retail and brick and mortar as a channel is one of those. And it's an extremely large channel um, and extremely deep, right? You can open a lot of stores and drive a ton of volume to your business because the reality is most people and most commerce in America still happens offline, right? Before the pandemic, it was something like 85%, depending on how you define retail. And, and I think it, it, it definitely took a step up. We sort of fast forwarded a few years with, with, uh, with, with the pandemic in terms of people's e-commerce habits, but. Maybe it's now eighty percent, right? Um, off eighty percent offline, so twenty percent online, right? Like the vast majority still uh, of sales still happen in person. People want it, and and they want it for multiple reasons, and and so should and so do brands, and that's why you're seeing great digital native brands turn to stores as their um, growth engine as they get bigger. I mean, I think the news with Warby Parker filing to go public and their growth story is predicated on stores. Like it just came out and I think there's like some surprise as journalists talk about like, wow, this digital native brand, like all they want to do is talk about stores and that's how they're going to grow. Like, isn't that a head scratcher? And it's like, okay, if you've been in this industry for a long time and you follow the economics, like it's not a head scratcher at all. Like this was an inevitability and they've been working on stores for a while. Like this is, Omnichannel is, is is what we've seen the most sustainable way to engage customers and be a mainstream brand.
0: I know you you mentioned something too that I think we've talked a bunch about on the show, which is it's easier today than ever maybe to start a company, but harder than ever to actually build a brand considering there's just enormous amount of competition, growth channels with Facebook and Google in particular being pretty saturated, and you don't have those arbitrage opportunities of of before. When you're analyzing brands for investment that don't have any retail exposure yet, what does product market fit look like? And what are signs that a brand has maybe gone has gotten past the noise, so to speak?
1: It's tough because you know, no one's got that, that crystal ball. We get excited certainly about metrics like like retention and frequencies. so we do a lot of cohort analysis, looking at, at your various customers by month and, and watching how they grow. our customers coming back at a really high rate. Is that rate increasing? Are they starting? Is their basket size or average order value a great number? And is that increasing as well, potentially as you add more products to your assortment that, that better serve the customer and help you take a little bit more share of wallet? And you can kind of see these, these customer-level metrics. And ultimately, those will, in in large ways, translate into impressive lifetime value. And so we'll be comparing... And looking at lifetime value metrics versus customer acquisition costs. And I mean, there's everyone has a different way of, of calculating that exactly. And, and, and we've got our formula for it. It's a really important one for us to, to understand how profitable that, that is. Because if you can generate great lifetime value to customer acquisition costs, then the capital that, that comes in from a growth investment or a venture investment Will really translate ideally into more growth. Now, what's hard to know is is how big the market is long term, right? Because you can see these these short term like current performance metrics, but you know the business might be at five or ten or fifteen or twenty million of revenue, and it's hard to know will this be a five hundred million dollar business or will it cap out at at fifty? And that's tough. I think we look at we try to find analogs legacy businesses that are kind of serving that customer. But you know, we ask ourselves and, and we and we look into the data, where are customers shopping today to fulfill the needs as close as they are, or, or where were they shopping previously to this, to shopping with this new brand? And then getting a sense for how big those businesses are, those legacy equivalents and saying, okay, well, we think, you know, this is a big opportunity. It's a big market this is what is a substitute good and this business is kind of taking an extra, another tweak on it. Maybe they're going for a younger audience. Maybe they're going for an older audience. By the way, I feel like digital native brands are, are too closely associated with millennials or or other young generations. I think there's a ton of fantastic digital native brands that actually don't serve millennials. Like we're investors in Madison Reed. We're investors in Untucket. They do not target millennials. So, So really you can and should be looking all types of customer demographics and potential populations who could drive and, and represent the addressable market for for this opportunity and, and when you try between all those things you kind of get some conviction that says yeah I, I think this has a lot of room to grow and and then you hope and then you hope it does I always ask myself what is the innovation and I don't mean that necessarily in, in always like a technological sense but it's just you know it could be an innovation on marketing or Brand or it could be product, it could be the experience, but I'm always looking for something that's very different. It's it's hard to expect a uniquely large or successful outcome without doing something differently. And and so I'm always looking for that that innovation. And sometimes I don't know that I don't know that that popular media always understands what that innovation is. Like, for instance, I think Unfortunately, people talked about Everlane for a long time as like cutting out the middleman. That's not their innovation. That, that they didn't cut out any middlemen. There was—they've always been direct-to-consumer brands like Banana Republic or or Gap or J. Crew, which they are now kind of you know serving as an alternative to. Those were direct-to-consumer companies too, and they were working with factories and they were making their products and they're selling online or they're opening their own stores, but all that stores, or if it's your own store, or if it's your own website, that's all of those are direct to consumer. A lot of great apparel brands were already direct to consumer. That was a wave that happened in like the eighties and nineties um, where a whole bunch of brands proliferated as direct to consumer concepts. Um, so that wasn't innovative at all. I think where they were actually innovative is on their marketing and on their transparency and supply chain, like that's where they were doing something different. Just even exposing what their supply chain was, how they selected factories, etc. So it was more of the, the values and ethos, um, and it really had nothing to do with cutting out middlemen.
0: Yeah, no, that's a great point. And also, I like what you brought up too. Is you know, direct to consumer. I think it's also talked about how we, it's almost natural or assumed that that's just online. Right. But as you pointed out, you know, a number of brands were doing that in the eighties and nineties, like going direct to consumer, which means they just they have their own stores, right?
1: Yeah. The brand is also the person selling you that product. They're not selling it to a third party, a retailer who then sells it on. Like a department store.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so, and sometimes I feel like, oh, well, the innovations direct to consumer because um, they're, you know, online selling their site. But it's like, okay, well, this has actually existed time and time before. It's just not online in, in, in the online format. And so, I mean, speaking of which, because you're interested about, you know, te- like going back to like the tech enabled tenants piece, when you're looking at brands and figuring out, okay, should I make this investment? And if I did make the investment, what does the retail or physical store standpoint look like? Would you only invest in a brand that you feel, okay, this brand will thrive as a tech-enabled tenant, meaning that they would actually have their own store? Or do you also look at brands or willing to invest in brands that also that maybe strictly do wholesale or, or, or also do wholesale?
1: We definitely have an ability to help influence the outcome uh you know, on the real estate side when you're actually opening your own stores. And and so from an from an investor's perspective, we want to invest where we can align our capabilities and, and really propel a company forward. So we are looking for companies that are primarily focused on if it is offline, that it's their own stores. Now I love businesses that also are experimenting or operating through wholesale channels. And some of ours do. codapaxi is a great example of that. They've got their own stores, but they also have a really thriving wholesale business. And that when we talk about it as kind of strategic wholesale, sometimes it's there's one major account that you want to be with and you have a unique relationship with them and, and they can kind of feature you in a way, um, both in-store or through advertising or you know other kind of media, whether it be catalogs or something like that. But it's it's a unique, very beneficial wholesale relationship. They've got a great relationship with REI, uh, but you've seen other brands, the mattress companies doing deals with Target or shaving brands, right, Like where they can get an end cap and they can get treated a little bit more differently than just another product on the shelf. I think in that case, wholesale could be great. I think you need to be selective and really smart and intentional about it because the margins are different. And if you've not built your pricing... Around what will eventually be a wholesale structure, it might be a really low-margin business for you. Now, I think people are starting to realize that, and uh, the days of kind of underpricing digitally native brand products are hopefully a, a little bit farther behind us. People are smart enough to know that, like, you can't just win by underpricing your product because that'll catch up to you. You'll never be profitable. Like, you you need to have appropriate margins, and when you do have great margins in your own channel, industry standard high margins, then you should be able to support wholesale margins as well. It's all part of a great, robust, omni-channel model. And I think that's the the best brands will tap any and every channel. They will be wherever their customer is or or might want them to be. And why not do wholesale? Absolutely should.
0: What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally?
1: There's one book I on the professional side that I actually... At one point, I was, I was almost making a required reading for, for anyone I hired when I was at the DigiNative brand. It was such a great book. It reminded me of the startup journey. It's Shoe Dog from Phil Knight about the Nike story. And, and sometimes you think, okay, Nike, you know, it wasn't like a venture capital backed business or anything like that. But I'm reading it and I'm like, wow, this is my experience. <laughs> this is like the ups and downs. By the way, probably the early the early chapters, I didn't have a Nike outcome, but but uh, you're reading it, and you're like, man, the highs and the lows. Sometimes in the same moment, it's just uncanny how similar it is to the the startup life. And it was a startup at the end of the day, maybe through different sourcing, but the stories and and the emotions are the same. And it's such a good introduction to the challenges of of retail and like inventory and things. And, manufacturing and all that stuff that you don't get with software. And so if anyone's in in the business of sort of digital brands, I highly encourage you to read Shoe Dog because there's a lot to be learned from that. Yeah, so the, so that that's on the professional side. On the personal side, you know, it's less about one book and more about a trend of books I was reading. So I'll tell you a story that's a little bit embarrassing, but I'm dating my now wife and early on, you know, it's it's she was a, a English major in college, extremely well read, and I'm trying to keep up. And and I'm saying, oh yeah, I've read these. I've, I've, here are some books that I've read, and and by the way, I didn't even read them. I actually just listened to, listened to them on Audible. Um, but I still, you know, I'm not quite sure what the right verb is to explain that you've read something on Audible, but um, you've listened to it. It just it doesn't have the same ring. But at the end of the day, I knew those stories, and so like I'm listing off some books. I'm like, you know, Steve. Jo- I love biographies. So I was like, Steve Jobs' biography. Um, Winston Churchill's biography, Steve Martin's biography, and she just looked at me and she kind of like tilted her head. And she's like, "You do realize that you're just reading stories about rich, powerful white men, right?" And I was like, "Oh, I am. You're right." And and it was just like it was such a gut punch. I was like, you know, I, I was following some trends and my passions, but I was missing the opportunity to. Expand, I guess, my perspective by bringing in different voices, different experiences, which is one of the things you can do so uniquely with books, right? And and so I think it was really her push that got me thinking of like how you choose books is important, and and it's such a great opportunity to expand your horizons. And yeah, so obviously since then I've like definitely changed my selection criteria for books, Um, trying to open my eyes to to different voices, different people, different perspectives, and. And I think that's probably the biggest change in my life from, from on the personal side from reading, which is just like how you think about which book you're going to be reading. There should be more intention to it. And I didn't have enough intention in, in, in those books early on.
0: Is there a particular biography once your now wife told you this or book maybe that didn't think you would read until you maybe had this conversation that you were maybe more thoughtful about in terms of expanding the voices that, that comes to mind?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly did the obvious. I read Lean In from Sheryl Sandberg, and I thought that was really helpful. I read a story about Henrietta Lacks, who, um, who was a woman who really became, not intentionally, and that was part of the story, but her, some of her cells became really pivotal cells um, that are used for researching in science and in medicine um, across the world. And I don't think she ever got enough credit for it. And there's a story about like, did she even consent to it and all that type of stuff? And this was a uneducated, uninformed woman who who didn't wasn't, you know, sort of treated with the respect and dignity by the medical community that she should have been early on. And like that's not a story I would have expected to to have to have read. But when I started searching for different stories and different perspectives, I thought that was an important one. Look, you, sometimes you don't know how it's, the dots will be connected. But I wasn't doing anything in medical back in the day, and that's not strictly a medical story, but it definitely has medical aspects to it. But but now one of my theses is the consumerization of healthcare and how healthcare is becoming a use, a really great use in real estate and sorry, in retail centers. Um, but I have you know a unique perspective, a very visceral one now that was informed by by a patient. You know, and like patient rights and privacy and things like that, that become a question for me and and, and part of my my frame of, of of reference as I look at businesses.
0: No, that's that's amazing. Well, I'm really excited to add all three of these to uh, to the uh, book list. That's awesome. That's awesome. And um, yeah, we've actually had a couple entrepreneurs on in the telemedicine future of healthcare space. So yeah, there's lots to talk about there too. My final question to you is, what's the best piece of advice that you've received or or maybe something that you say to yourself over and over again?
1: Professionally, a great piece of advice I got was to make my boss uh, obsolete. Like My job is to you know, take as much off of, off of their plate as possible so that they don't even have to do the job at the end of the day. And ultimately it's kind of how you move up. It's I think the best way to to step up and 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 to have, you know, a new role or promotion or what have you is 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 to just do it. Right. And and so if you're constantly thinking about how to make your boss obsolete, um, I think it's just a great framework for 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 getting there. And and it's a very proactive one at that. The other thing I I got early on in terms of my advice was to get as close as possible to the decisions and to the decision makers, and and that's the way to kind of really test your abilities in business and you know professionally speaking. And what I mean by that is, you know, I, I felt like in consulting, you were making a recommendation that went to a person or a board, uh, but you were kind of far away from the decision. You weren't making the decision yourself as to what would happen, and and then as an investor, you were a lot of times, part of a decision or helping approve a decision is kind sort of at a board level. Um, but then, when you become the actual manager and the doer, you are making the recommendation, you're making the decisions and and the micro decisions that happen on the ground every day. And that's hard. You got to be uh, intellectually honest with yourself about those decisions and tracking them. And you know, did I make the right decision? You can learn from them. Um, but but I think it's really hard to learn at all. If there's no feedback, um, on decisions, if you're not the one actually making them, anyone can make, can suggest something or make an idea. But if you don't make decision and you don't live with that, it's, it's hard to learn from it.
0: Yeah. Those are two, I mean, great, great piece of advice. Um, that's yeah, that's, it's really helpful. I don't think we've, I don't think we've had, um, folks, uh, talk about that, uh, that so much. I, I, I really liked. also make your, your job is to make your boss's job obsolete and really just making yourself invaluable and really just um, irreplaceable. Kevin, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thanks for the time, Mike. And there you have it. It was fantastic chatting with Kevin. I hope you all enjoyed that as much as I did. I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.